So without further ado, Michael Mallory. Thank you. I'll try not to be anticlimactic. Uh, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Um, well, thank you for turning out. It's good to see everybody here. Um, as, uh, as you've heard, I've written several books on various fields of pop culture. One of them was on universal horror movies. And after that book, I pitched my publisher an idea, why don't we do the same thing that we did for Universal, but for everybody, for every studio. And they said, um, oh, I don't know, which is, you know, what publishers say. And so they gave me the green light, but I have to say for quite some time, the working title of the book was another book on horror movies. Really? And so I had to explain why this one should be published and why it's going to be different than all of the other books on horror movies. And that's where the idea of essential came from. And I actually fought them over that word and finally won. Fortunately, they wanted classic horror movies. Uh, There's about 20 of those. I mean, 20 of those books. There's thousands of classic horror movies. But um, actually, if if it's okay with everybody... Uh, I'm old. Um, but I thought what really, what I haven't seen done and what I would like to do is a book that, that gives the history of the genre through the, bo- the movies that are absolutely essential, that without them, the genre would not be propelled in the way it was. And so I came up with a criterion for what is essential. Uh, just being scary is nice but it's not really that essential. And so my definition was something that either introduced a character, a theme, a subject, an actor, an iconic actor perhaps, um, something that took an old theme and did it in such a unique way that everybody else copied it. Um, It could even be a title. One of my favorite entries in this book, which is on nobody's list of great world movies, is I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. Because, you know, Sam Arkoff said his partner, Jim Nicholson, came into him and said, Sam, I had this idea last night. Why do you hear this title? I was a teenage, actually, I was a teenage werewolf. And they're like, wow, that's a great title. Let's wrap a movie around it somehow. Because that's how they worked back then. Um, but that started the teenage uh, craze. Yes, Michael Landon played the werewolf. But you had, prior to that, your teenage movies were 30-year-old Marlon Brando on a motorcycle in the wild one, you know, what are you rebelling against? Well, you'll go. And so this was really the teen films. Then they did do I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. There's a movie called Blood of Dracula that could have been called I Was a Teenage Female Dracula. Uh, and the ultimate application was when the biblical epic King of Kings came out. Several of the critics dubbed it I Was a Teenage Jesus because of the gorgeous, blonde, blue-eyed, angsty Christ. And so that just stuck. I Was a Teenage fill-in-the-blank as part of the lexicon now. That makes that movie, in my view, essential. And it's also kind of a fun film. It's better than it has any right to be. Um, so those were the things that I was thinking about, about what made something essential. Um, in speaking uh, today with the bookstore, they said, uh, do you have any photos or anything like that? And I went, no. So very quickly, I put together a little bit of a, a screen display here. And I thought, maybe what I should do is do something like 
the ten most essential horror movies. Talk about those. So I sat down and started making a list, and I was up to about 12 before I was out of the 1950s. So I said, okay, all right, right. The 15 essential horror movies, same thing. I was 18, I was maybe in Psycho. And I didn't even bother 20. I just said, we'll go straight to 25 and make the 25 most essential horror movies, in my opinion. So, with that in mind, I would like to present to you the 30 most essential horror movies, and actually 30 and a half, but because I did this very quickly, since then I've realized there's a couple of omissions that are so obvious that they were omitted. Sometimes they're just so obvious you don't think of them. So I'm going to fudge a little bit and do 31, 32, something like that. But this is a bunch of essential horror movies. So uh, these are all represented in the books. All of the photos come from the book. Um, And I will start with the gentleman you see behind you, who is an actor named Werner Krauss from the film called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Uh, It was released in 1920. You often see that it was released in 1919. It wasn't. It was made in 1919, released in 1920, and it is an expressionistic nightmare. Um, There are two conflicting theories. One is that the director, Robert Wien, just had this brilliant idea where he wanted to use German expressionism, which made sense because he was German, and, and create this nightmare, and the other conflicting theory is they had no money. And so they just cobbled together some very theatrical sets. I honestly don't know which is which is accurate. I kind of hope the first one is. But uh, one of the things that makes this so essential, aside from its early um, appearance, is that look at this figure. Stringy hair, cloak, hunched, top hat. This is an iconic image. Boris Karloff used it in a film called The Bells. Lon Chaney used it in a more famous film called London After Midnight. Go home and turn on Sven Gulli. There he is. That look came from this film. The cabinet in question is a box in which a somnambulist is uh, kept. Uh, the somnambulist is named Cesare, and he's played by an actor named Conrad Veidt, who came back to America via England in the early 40s and became Hollywood's favorite Nazi. He was the bad guy in Casablanca. But more interesting, most people don't realize he was Universal's first choice to play Dracula ten years after this film was made. He had, I I couldn't get a photo with his eyes open. He had the coldest, the scariest eyes in the movies. They were just terrifying. Um, It was all set in a carnival and this uh, character Cesare was running around and was ostensibly killing people, abducting women, everything that a good monster should do. Uh, And again, there are two theories as to the end of this movie, which suddenly turns very realistic after being this expressionistic dream. And you find out that the entire thing is in the mind of a lunatic in an asylum. And some... Oops, what did I do? I did something. Thank you. Um, Some people say that the producer insisted that you know, nobody's going to accept this film if it goes out like this. You've got to put an explanation to it. Even Hitchcock had that problem. Um, and other people say, no, it was the idea all along. Again, we can't ask the filmmakers. They aren't here anymore. But I kind of hope it was the idea all along. Cause I hate the idea of studios 
leaning on creative people. Uh, the next one is The Golem, which was made in 1920. This is the most famous version of the ancient folk tale about the clay figure that is magically brought to life uh, to defend the Jews of the Prague ghetto. There he is. Um, now, the, the importance of this, aside from the fact that it is a pretty good early supernatural film, will be evident. This is an actor named Paul Wegner who was fascinated with the golem. He was absolutely fascinated with the character. And again, one of the great unanswered questions is why someone who was fascinated with a, a Jewish folktale went on to become Hitler's favorite actor. We'll never know. Some people say he just, you know, you do what you got to do to work. We don't know. Um, there is a story, as you probably, some of you probably know, Bela Lugosi was originally scheduled to play the Frankenstein monster after Dracula. They did a very famous screen test where Lugosi supposedly made himself up to look like this, to look like the golem. Test didn't work. But look at this picture. Look at the character, and particularly look at his feet. Those are Frankenstein boots. You can see this repeated about 11 years later with a monster in Little Maria in Frankenstein. You've all seen this image, I'm sure. This is from the film Nosferatu, which was the first version of Dracula, and in a lot of ways the most accurate version of Dracula because they had the whole ship scene where he's leaving Transylvania and the crew dies. Um, it, It had... Terrific photography, creepy acting. It had absolutely everything except permission from the Bram Stoker estate to make it in the first place. So Stoker's widow insisted, she sued and insisted that every print of the movie be destroyed. And ostensibly they were except for one, which is why we can see this fun stuff today. Now again, this is a face if you've seen the miniseries of Stephen King's Salem's Lot you recognize this makeup. It was duplicated for that. And we were talking earlier about the movie Shadow of the Vampire with Willem Dafoe. Um, This is, I consider this essential. Not everybody will, maybe. This is The Cat and the Canary, 1927, made by Paul Lenny, who was a German filmmaker who came to Hollywood, but continued the the tradition of German expressionism. And the reason I consider this essential is because it was the first major horror comedy from which almost all others are based. How many movies have you seen that image? Um, or that? The, the door opens, the you know, guy in disguise obviously comes out. Um, but the, uh, the Cat and the Canary also has an image in it that everybody has seen, but they probably don't know where it comes from. And that's just a corridor lined with windows, curtains, white curtains billowing in. Anytime anybody sees that image, they automatically get the creeps. Um, this is my half essential. You know, if I, if I had more, it would be more essential. Phantom of the Opera, one of the classic movies of all time. Uh, it didn't make my top 30 essential. It made the half essential simply because it is in its own way kind of unique. Even though the story has gone on and continues on, nobody can top Lon Chaney. 
Um, you can't reproduce what they did. This was a very troubled production in its time. And the most interesting thing about this is everybody thinks we've seen it, but we really haven't because the version that has come down through history is the 1930 sound version, which was reassembled with outtakes and alternate takes and foreign takes, and then the sound added because they didn't want to chop up the original negative. And they simply wiped all of the musical numbers and the sound from it, and now this is the standard silent version. So the unmasking scene in the 25 original is much more frightening. The story is a little bit different. The cast is a little bit different. It's, it's a better movie, and they found it a couple of years ago, and it's now available on disc. Um, but it is, it, it's, it's worth the effort seeking it out. Now we come to the sound era. Dracula, in my opinion, is the single most essential horror movie of the American cinema. Why? Because it's the first one that unapologetically presented the supernatural. Prior to that, you had this guy. He's ugly, but he's human. You had this guy. He's in disguise. He's not really a monster. Dracula really was a vampire. He really bit people. He really lived in a coffin. And there was no trick ending, no explanation. That was very revolutionary for American audiences. German audiences wouldn't have batted an eye. They'd had it for decades. But over here, you always had to have a trick ending. In Cheney's London After Midnight, it turns out to be the detective dressed as the vampire. So if it's true... Go away. Go away. Go away. Thank you. If it's true that... Uh, that women fainted when Dracula first came out. Um, this is probably why. This in a little coda where the actor Edward Van Sloan, uh, he was back a couple, I guess. This gentleman right there, the white-haired fellow, is Edward Van Sloan, playing Von Helsing, comes out to the audience, you know, ostensibly to reassure them, and says, we hope you liked the movie. We just want to tell you as you're walking home alone in the dark, looking over your shoulder. Remember, my friends, there are such things. That's the end of the movie. Everybody goes screaming out of the theater. Dracula was such a hit, naturally, we go to Frankenstein. Now, like I mentioned before, Bela Lugosi was supposed to play the Frankenstein monster. He didn't want to do it. He managed to get out of it, which is a very good thing, because Boris Karloff, as the monster, delivered one of the most remarkable performances in the history of film. It's just as impressive today as it was at the time, and, and you know, still terrifying, because you're not looking at a, a middle-aged British actor who was really struggling at that point in his career. All you see is the monster. You don't see the guy under the makeup. Uh, his body language, you know, the brilliant makeup by a guy named Jack Pierce. Um, Frankenstein really is the film that started the horror genre. Dracula kind of was the spark plug, but with Frankenstein, you stomp on the gas. You have the laboratory, you know, the, the great uh, the, the Jacob's Ladders and all of the things that had... Hmm? Tesla, coils. Tesla coils, Jacob's Ladders, whatever they could find. A guy named Ken Strickfadden built all this stuff. And it still exists. It was used again last, I think, for Young Frankenstein, but it's in somebody's garage somewhere. Um, the Wolfman... 
is the film that kicked off the second horror cycle of the classic era, and it's also the great character, the third great character of the, the monster Troika. But this is really the movie that, that created the change. Yes, there was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but a man changing into a total beast, a man changing into an animal. Uh, this is the film that really popularized it. There had been a werewolf movie prior to this, but it wasn't that good. It didn't do that well. Um, again, another brilliant makeup job by Jack Pierce, painstaking, took hours and hours with the hair applied one little clump at a time. It wasn't on a lace wig. Lon Chaney hated the makeup. He wasn't like his dad. He hated this kind of makeup. Um, Cat People is Val Luton from RKO. Val Luton got the job as a horror producer, he always claimed, because he told somebody at a party he'd written several horrible novels, and they thought he said horror novels. And so they made him head of the horror unit. His style was so different than Universal. He really wanted to be different from Universal. He thought Universal was vulgar. He thought it was cheap. Uh, and the only thing he retained was the cheap part, because RKO put him on a strict budget, 125000 that's it. Make your movies. Um, they're very subliminal. They're very uh, shadowy. This is Simone Simone and uh, who's that? Tom Conway, George Sanders' brother in the film. Um, but one of the lasting things that Luton did is something not a lot of, as Michael Caine would say, not a lot of people know that, um, which is called the Luton bus. That is the term that has come down for it. It was pioneered in The Cat People where the character is walking down the dark street. It's all very shadowy. She's very frightened. All of a sudden she hears this deafening shriek. The audience goes through the roof and it turns out to be the brakes of a bus. Every movie since then has done that. Somebody going through the haunted house and you hear, and the cat jumps out. That's a Luton bus. Except it's a cat. Uh, but the concept is called the Luton bus. There again is uh, Simone Simone. A very cat-like actress, actually, especially if you didn't pet her enough. Um, Dead of Night from Ealing Studios in 1945. Very unusual for Ealing Studios, but it was a transitional film for them between their World War II docudramas and the comedies that they were known for with Alec Guinness, like the uh, Man in the White Suit and uh, the Lavender Hill Mob. But this was the first portmanteau movie where there were five different stories with a linking story wrapped putting them all together. Um, and the five stories, if you watch this movie today, you think, oh my God, what cliches. But these are the ones that started the cliche. The haunted mirror that shows you what's going to happen. The ventriloquist whose dummy overtakes him. Michael Redgrave in a, a creepy performance to this day gives you the, raises the hackles. A uh, much later studio called Amicus, which was formed in the 60s as a rival to Hammer Films, continued that portmanteau idea with things like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, which is a good movie that has a lousy title. And uh, they even did some of the EC Comics films, Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror. Now we come to the color era with House of Wax. Um, the reason I'm here tonight is because of House of Wax. Because when I was maybe six, I'm thinking, um, they were showing House of Wax on television. I had no idea what it was. I just heard the announcer go, you know, nine o'clock tonight, House of Wax. And then they show a clip of this fellow Oh, this, I'll interrupt my story. House of Wax, of course, was in 3D. 
Um, the gentleman on the left is Andre de Toth, the director of the movie, who had only one eye, so he wouldn't have known 3D, you know, if it bit him. Uh, the lady in the middle is Phyllis Kirk, the leading lady who, who loved Andre de Toth and told me some other nut would have ruined the movie with a 3D. And, of course, the fellow on the right is Vincent Price. Um, but in the movie, there is a, a sculptor whose wax museum is burnt down. And there's also this terribly disfigured monster running around. And the way the movie is structured, you're supposed to go, hmm, I wonder if there's a connection between the two. Well, if you can't figure it out, you should stick to westerns. But of course... It is Vincent Price. But uh, photos like this were not released at the time because they wanted the audience to be guessing. So if you saw a photo, this is one of the problems with books like these is you have to go back to the original publicity photos. All of them were blacked out. They just had a a black hole where Vincent Price's face should be. Um, So anyway, going back to my story, I watch a scene in the movie with this fellow in a wheelchair and he suddenly gets up and he's suddenly walking towards this girl and they're talking and he's got a very quiet voice. It doesn't sound frightening at all. And uh, suddenly she pops him in the face. His face disintegrates, revealing this underneath. I didn't stop running and screaming until I was in the next city. That was my introduction to horror movies. Um, Curse of Frankenstein was Hammer Films in the 1950s that really re-energized the genre because after the 40s, you didn't, if you had a monster movie, it was a giant tarantula, or it was the Gill Man, it was science fiction. Uh, Hammer Films decided to start remaking these old movies, did them extremely well for very little money. Um, the laboratories were actually rather scientifically accurate for the time period. They had a, a wonderful group of actors, all of these terrific British theater actors who would grab a little film money during the day, uh, notably Peter Cushing, who was an absolutely delightful human being and an excellent actor, and his partner in crime, Christopher Lee, who had been kicking around at this point in time about eight, nine years in the British uh, film industry, but got cast because of his height. He was six foot four, and uh, had no lines. Peter Cushing, uh, Lee went and complained to Peter Cushing and said, "I have no dialogue." Cushing said, "I've read the script. You're lucky." And uh, um, but they they could not use the uh, Frankenstein, the the Jack Pierce Frankenstein makeup because it was copyrighted by Universal. So they had to come up with this, which Lee always described as looking like a road accident, which it does a bit. That movie was so successful, they went on to Dracula. They reversed what Universal did. Horror of Dracula was probably the one that really put the studio on the map. Just like Universal Dracula started, Frankenstein slammed at home. Uh, at Hammer, it was the opposite. Christopher Lee got a little bit of a break on the makeup, at least for a while, uh, becoming the Dracula of his generation, really. Not quite supplanting Bela Lugosi, but, but really identifying with the role. Because when you think of Christopher Lee, you probably think of Dracula, but when you think of Dracula, you probably think of Bela Lugosi. That's the difference. Um, it had these, you know, these great set pieces, this wonderful fight between Van Helsing and, and Dracula. And the one thing I have always wondered, being kind of a logical sort of guy, is this vampire is centuries old. He's, you know, I've commanded armies, as Lee was always prone to scream out at odd moments of these movies. 
After all this time, why doesn't he paint over the windows? You know, I know it would ruin a good ending, but still. Um, now the disintegration scene has become notorious, and here's something you're not going to see in the movie. This city, that shot was cut out of the film as too gruesome. There was a very prolonged disintegration scene where he literally tears the flesh off his face. And... Uh, the, the British censors said, absolutely not. And even the American censors, it was a little too much for them. So they've got a very truncated disintegration scene. Now here's the movie that brought horror home to mother. Um, everybody knows Psycho. We all know the shower scene, one of the most famous uh, in history. At the time... Everybody thought Alfred Hitchcock had lost his mind. Paramount, not Universal, was the studio that released this film. Paramount didn't want to do it. They, they did everything they could to keep this movie from being made, including telling Hitchcock he couldn't shoot it. There was no room at Paramount. All the sound stages were full. Hitchcock said, that's all right. I'll go to Universal where my TV crew is. Don't worry. Hitchcock finally had to to uh, secure financing for the movie himself. Uh, And the studio still didn't even want to release it. Um, When it first came out, the reviews were terrible. And then it's one of those movies that over time, people had to go back and they had to look at again and go, wow, this is really something. But it did take time. It was that far ahead of its time. Um, We were talking earlier about the humor in horror movies. Hitchcock always described this as a fun picture. And he just thought it was hilarious, you know, which I think means you wouldn't want Hitchcock to babysit for you, but he he really thought it was hilarious. But, you know, in the final accounting, it is a story about a young man and his mummy. This is Mrs. Bates. She had her own chair on the set. Um, This is a film that was made by Mario Bava, who is an Italian filmmaker, one of the creators of the genre known as giallo, which is an Italian thriller. Um, the original Italian title, I don't speak Italian, uh, but it was whatever is Italian for uh, Mask of the Demon. And uh, But over here, Sam Arkoff, who was head of AIP Pictures, who was then just starting his Edgar Allan Poe series and had done epics like Monster from the Ocean Floor and Little Shop of Horrors, uh, Corman was, was working with Sam. Um, he realized he could take some of these Italian movies, dub them, bring them over here. If there was anything that had to be changed, you do it in the dubbing. And in this film, there was quite a lot that had to be changed because it was pretty gruesome. But it was about a centuries-old witch who comes back to life and inhabits the body of her descendant, which, if anybody has watched The Vampire Diaries, you know, is still going on. Um, The Italian version is much more gruesome than the uh, American version, but even the American version is pretty strong stuff. This is the mask of the demon in question. It's got spikes on the other side of it that go into her face. And uh, it also introduced to the cinema an actress named... Where is she? Oops. Where'd she go? There she is, Barbara Steele who was a British actress who found herself in Italy at the time and became the original Scream Queen, or maybe second behind Faye Ray. Um, Now, as I mentioned, Corman and Arkoff were doing Edgar Allan Poe movies. Roger says it wasn't as a response to the Hammer films. I don't believe him, but I'm not going to argue with Roger Corman. Um, 
but uh, they looked expensive as the Hammer films did. They were in CinemaScope as the Hammer films were. They were full color as the Hammer films were. The Hammer films were brilliantly acted. They were in full color as the Hammer films were. Um, and every one of them starred Vincent Price, or most of them starred Vincent Price. Uh, he was the key interpreter of Edgar Allan Poe. These things are absolutely fun to watch, but you have to take them, the way I describe them is it, they frequently look like a visiting professional actor in a college production because Price is going so far over the top of the other young actors that were in Corman's stock company. But The Pit and the Pendulum is not the first of the Poe pictures, but it's really the quintessential one. All of the elements came together in this movie. It has nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe, except there's a pendulum. That's it. That's the only connection. Howard Hawks' El Dorado has more to do with Edgar Allan Poe than this movie. But it doesn't matter because you get to see uh, Vinny at his craziest and beautiful color and sets. There he is just starting to go a little bit bonkers. Even he agreed this was the performance that gave him his, his 60s reputation as being, shall we say, a tad over the top. I mean, his, his you know, you ask him about it, and he just go, oh, that was pretty hokey, wasn't it? Uh, Cut to Rosemary's Baby. Now we're not over the top. We're not doing kind of fun stuff. We're getting into an era where the horror movies were quite serious, and this was, of course, based on the Ira Levin uh, novel, which is a brilliant novel. Um, and it caused a lot of unease at the time because in the mid-'60s, there was a very famous Time magazine cover that said, Is God Dead? And uh, this was a reaction to that, both the book and the movie. Uh, the movie is probably the most accurate film of a novel that has ever been made. I mean, it's, it's uncanny how accurate, how close it is to the novel. And the alleged reason is because Roman Polanski, who directed it, didn't realize he could stray. This was the first movie he'd made from an existing source, and he thought he had to take the book and do it word for word. Um, but it worked. Um, this is, again, Rosemary's Baby with Mia Farrow's controversial haircut because we worried about things back then. And this you know, proves that you should always trim your fingernails before you go to bed. Now, that same year, 1968, the reset button got hit on the horror movie. Uh, Rosemary's Baby was a, a you know, big-budget production or a moderately big-budget production with an um, established filmmaker. William Castle actually was the producer who had done things like House on Haunted Hill. But at the same time, you've got a bunch of guys in Pennsylvania who made their living doing commercials and industrial films who just woke up one morning and said, hey, why don't we try to do a movie? Who's going to stop us? Nobody stopped them, and they came up with something called Night of the Living Dead. Nothing has ever been the same since. Every horror movie that's been made since this movie was released, I think it was October of 1968, owes something to Night of the Living Dead and the director George Romero. You simply can't get out from under it. It's that influential. When this movie came out, you had film critics warning people, you know, because mom and dad would drop their kids off to go see Vincent Price, Wicked Old Uncle Vinny, or to go see 
you know, a Boris Karloff movie because it was pretty safe. And the critics were saying, don't drop the kids off alone to see this. Trust us. Um, the, it, it, there was articles in Reader's Digest about it. <laughs> um, it was also one of the first... American films, maybe even the first to have an African-American hero who was genuinely the hero. He was the good guy of the film, protecting everybody. Um, If you haven't seen it, well, you've seen it even if you haven't seen it because the story is basically the Alamo, except instead of Santa Ana, you've got zombies. And it's been done many, many times before, that same idea. But it's the imagery that sticks. And all of these these actors are not professional actors. There were two pro actors in the entire movie and everybody else was like, hey, you want to be in a film? Kind of thing. People were putting up the money. They were doing whatever it took. Um, the special effects were really pretty creaky but undeniably effective. Um, basically, silly putty. You know, they would coat a beef bone with silly putty and then have somebody rip it off with their teeth and the audience is going, ooh, because it's never been seen before. Only the filmmakers know it's silly putty. Um, So this was it. This was the beginning of the modern era. It was quickly followed by your favorite film. Um, Now, The Last House on the Left is not a brilliant film. It's a compelling film. Um, It's Even today, it's a film that's a little difficult to sit through. It has some weak moments, notably a couple of cop characters that are straight out of Max Sennett who don't belong in this movie. But some of the imagery in it is just unbelievable. And it played for keeps. It was a movie that did, it took no prisoners. It's uh, uh, a revenge film, as as you mentioned earlier. It's, it's a remake of of uh, Virgin Spring, an Ingmar Bergman movie, though I don't think he ever knew that. And it was made by a young filmmaker named Wes Craven, who just recently passed away, who was hugely influential over the years. But this, again, when it started, it was intended to be a porn film, because Craven had been working in porn up to that point. Um, All of the actors were porn actors, which is why they can't act. And uh, halfway through the movie, they decided, oh, let's not do the hardcore stuff. Let's just, you know, get, try to get an R, you know, maybe a PG, go as far as we can. Well, of course, it ended up with an X. Um, but it's got the reddest blood of any film. They had a special formula. I don't know what it was. Don't know what they did to it. By God, that blood looks good. I mean, in a gross way. It is brilliant blood. And it also introduced to the movies the concept of a chainsaw as a weapon, which was very handy because a couple of years later, we get this. Uh, Now, these little movies, these cheap, almost amateur movies, wouldn't seem like they're so essential, but really they are. They changed everything. They forced the envelope of the horror movie forward. They expanded it in every way in terms of what you could do. And, you know, as these little cheap movies come out, then you have other filmmakers going, well, if they can do that, I can do that too. Um, Texas Chainsaw was made for the price of a wedding uh, in Texas. Largely amateur actors or college actors and sometimes college professors, theater professors, just whoever they could get. Um, And Leatherface, one of the great icons of the modern horror cinema. And this is actually a very good performance, a guy named Gunnar Hansen, um, who really does a good job of playing this 
this horrible character in in kind of a Frankensteinian way, so you feel sorry for him. He's clearly not there. He's not balanced. He's wearing this skin mask. He's killing people with chainsaws. But you still kind of feel a little sorry for him. Um, and it also introduced the concept that's now known as torture porn. It's hard to see in this film, but she's hanging on a meat hook. Um, torture porn became very popular. It's not my favorite subgenre, but there it is. You know, it, it's made Eli Roth rich. Um, but what's really kind of funny about this movie is when you see it today, it's not all that gross. You don't see people's heads getting severed with chainsaws. It's pretty much suggestive. And some of the makeup effects are appalling. <laughs> but that's all the money they had. Um, something else. I'm talking about major filmmakers kind of copying what was done in the low budget. If you don't recognize this, this is the first victim of Jaws, which not only changed the horror film, and really it is a horror film. It's just instead of a ghoul, a zombie, a, somebody stitched together from pieces, a vampire, you've got something in nature. Um, a big old shark. Um, this is the image that starts the film and that great music. And again, the music changed Hollywood forever. The special effects changed Hollywood forever. Steven Spielberg changed Hollywood forever. Another reset button was hit on this. Um, the three actors, of course, Robert Shaw, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, And the reason they need a bigger boat. Everybody knows the story of Jaws. I don't really need to talk about it that much. Bruce the shark malfunctioned so much and so often. And there were so many problems and they went so over budget. And Spielberg was this young director that thought this was going to be his first and last movie because Universal was going to kill him. That on the set the movie was called Flaws. Oops. Excuse me. No, there's another shark shot. But... um, Cute little devil, ain't he? And so this was the beginning of mainstream horror movies. We're not talking about low-budget producers working for drive-ins. We're not talking about European producers dubbing their films and coming over or regional producers doing very cheap, non-union little scrub-together things that somehow become effective and influential. We're talking big major studios, big major stars, big major money, big major horror. The Omen was a huge hit, mixed reviews, but a huge hit, that again played on this devil child thing, the, the fear of secularism in society and if you ever want to scare anybody with a little kid you name him Damien this is what started it Uh, he was always good to his mother um this this is the classic scene from the movie. It's hard to... This, I believe, is a frame grab, not an actual shot. Um, but basically, every character in the movie gets killed, and the, the deaths are foretold. And this particular character, a photographer played by David Warner, sees a photo of himself where he's got this big black slash running across his throat. So he's going to be decapitated. He does it when a pane of glass comes flying out of a runaway truck. The head spins. And the director, Richard Donner, shot it from three three angles, three cameras running simultaneously, for obvious reasons. This is a big stunt, and you you don't want to blow it with a ready-when-you-are CB. So he got the footage back, and he loved it so much, he used all three shots one after the other with the idea of, 
bang, you see the heads, guy's head going, oh, geez, you turn back, bang, there it goes again. Oh, no, bang, oh, shit, you know, three times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was a very controversial shot. Uh, and uh, honestly, nobody's really tried to do it since then that much. So um, in the original, the Damien was supposed to die, but they started smelling money and sequel. So he lived, and instead Gregory Peck died. Aww. Aww. Now, once again, here's another game changer. Who knew a guy with a $1.98 William Shatner mask and a butcher knife would change the industry. Uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, one of the scariest movies ever made, especially if you watch it in a movie theater where you can scream along with everybody else. The music changed things. Uh, it, it made a star out of Jamie Lee Curtis as, as it should have. She deserved to become a star because she is really what holds this movie together. Aside from being kind of the straight man of the film, Nobody can play terror the way Jamie Lee Curtis can play terror. And if you don't believe that character on the screen is afraid, you're not going to be afraid. She convinced you she was going to die. And the audience screamed. Donald Pleasance revitalized his career. The role was originally offered to Christopher Lee, who at that point in his career wanted nothing more to do with horror films. He turned it down years later. He said it was the biggest mistake he ever made. Uh, this is one of the iconic shots uh, with the the unkillable Michael Myers, if only. Um, the other one. Um, you know, pulling headstones up and, and recreating all the fun he had at Halloween when he was a little boy. Um, and again, like some of the best horror movies, there are elements of humor in this. They give you breaks where you can stop screaming long enough to take a breath and then the next scream comes. Uh, but it's almost, almost the perfect low-budget horror film. Um, this one I put on the essential list. This is one of the few sci-fi horror films I included, Alien, because this is essentially a haunted house movie, except instead of a haunted house, you're in a spaceship, and the monster's still out to get you. It also created one of the greatest roles for a female actress. Uh, and you started seeing a lot of good, strong roles for female actresses after this. It had, of course, the glop effect. And it created the, the kind of techno-horror creature, like Predator, where maybe he's alien, maybe he's scientific, you know, Terminator, Robocop, all of these kind of tag in on that techno-horror Type. Oh, yeah. I wondered where I left my axe. Yeah. Uh, this is Friday the 13th. Now, when you think of Friday the 13th, you think of Jason. Jason was mentioned in Friday the 13th, and he makes a surprise cameo appearance at the end, but you don't see him in a hockey mask. That only occurred in the third of the series, that iconic hockey mask look. And it happened by accident. Uh, the stunt guy who was playing Jason um, was a hockey player. And he had the mask, and somebody had him put the mask on, and the director came out and went, oh, you know, and history is born. Um, but in this one, there's a killer who is wiping everybody out. It's a really gory mystery is what it is. And it followed up even more emphatically on the, uh, the Halloween theme of if you're a teenager and you have sex, you're going to die. And so they do in more gruesome ways here. Um, 
I won't give the ending away, but I just did. Um, and, you know, the one by one, the... Uh, the people get killed, and what's notable about this is it's one of the very first films of Kevin Bacon, who played one of the teenagers who made the mistake of, uh, of having sex. And so, as your doctor has always told you, a slice of bacon can be dangerous. So, Forey would be proud. Um, yeah, here's an elevator you don't need to wait for. A lot of people consider um, The Shining to be the scariest movie ever made. A lot of people consider The Exorcist to be the scariest movie ever made. And the reason I don't have photos of The Exorcist is it's one of those films that was so incredibly obvious that I left it off my 30 list. But The Exorcist definitely is one of the most essential horror movies ever made by anybody anywhere. And one of the scariest. Um, the, uh, um, the Shining, honestly... I was kind of bored with it when I first saw it. It's a polarizing film. And so when I was working on the book, I said, you know, I'm going to go watch it again because maybe when I, I loved the book, the Stephen King book, so maybe, maybe when I saw the movie I just wasn't in the right mood or, you know, whatever. So I watched it again and went, eh, no, it's still boring. Um, however, you cannot deny that this is a one-stop shopping film for images and catchphrases and things that have become iconic the you know running around in the snow that's a little little less iconic than some of the others and I don't have every single iconic image in here but the two creepy girls in the hallway you still see these in commercials yeah. and most people have forgotten where they first came from that's where they first came from and of course uh, the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy totally changed the meaning of that phrase as it did here's Johnny so so much came from this movie so much iconic imagery it is one of the most essential one of the most influential movies ever um an American werewolf in London was part of a werewolf renaissance of the early 80s and you know, I don't know if everybody just got the idea all at once or had a bad party or what, but this is the best of the werewolf movies. Um, the transformations, even today, are, are jaw-dropping. Rick Baker's makeup effects are just absolutely stunning. But it really ushered in the whole style of special effects makeup, not simply makeup or prosthetic makeup, special effects makeup using hydraulics, using machinery, using things. The costume budget wasn't big though. Although this was really good because for all of us with these terrible senses of logic, Lon Chaney Jr. is in the hospital in pajamas. The moon comes up, he turns into the werewolf, then he runs around in this black shirt and slacks. Then the next morning he's back into his pajamas. It doesn't make sense. In this movie, they, when he turned into the werewolf, the clothes simply went away. They got shredded. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, that's, that's a close-up of the werewolf makeup. And this is the transformation with the hydraulic snout, where you see it actually elongating. Uh, Poltergeist is the dark side of the Spielberg universe. Again, very iconic in terms of the imagery and the catchphrases. They're here. A lot of people forget where that came from. Uh, the moving tree, the clown under the bed. And Joe Beth Williams, the actress, didn't realize they'd made all these props from real skeletons at the time. They only told her later. 
probably a good idea. Um, now, this is one that may not show up on people's radar. This is Return of the Living Dead, made in 1985. And it's kind of spoofy. It's, it's a take on Night of the Living Dead, made by some of the same filmmakers, from the premise that Night of the Living Dead was actually a documentary. And here's the follow-up of what really happened. It was a government cover-up. They released the toxic zombie stuff. It's very funny in its own way. Um, but the reason this has become so iconic is for one simple little thing. Everybody today knows that zombies are these dead creatures that walk around going, brains. This is the movie that came from. You didn't hear that prior to Return of the Living Dead. You had zombie movies going back to the 30s, but the whole brains thing comes from here. More recently, The Blair Witch Project. Now, some people don't like this movie. I think it's wonderful. I think it's scary. Very psychological, obviously. Again, made for the price of a used car. But really what this did that changed everything was the marketing campaign, the viral marketing campaign. This was the first where they introduced it online. And to this day, people still think it's a true story and that these three people really went out into the woods and died. And I don't know how because they started showing up on the talk shows and things and they looked pretty good. But, but you still hear that where people will say, oh no, they, they really went out, you know, this is really the footage. The genre that it created, didn't quite create, but popularized is called found footage, which means you get a videotape, today it would be a disc or a cell phone or something, and it shows you what happened, but you don't really understand why or what's going on, you just see the footage and try to piece it together. Um, I think this probably holds the record of of profitability in terms of how much money it made, which was tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to budget, which was nothing, literally nothing, shot by the cast, improvised for the most part in a matter of days in an itty-bitty, little-bitty, tiny woods that they made look like was huge. Um, and... Uh, you know, it, it made a fortune for the distributor, not necessarily the people. Last on the list of essentials and in the book, oh, this is actually still Blair Witch. And that's still Blair Witch. It's hard to get photos from Blair Witch because it's all video. Um, paranormal activity. That was very scary. This was also a found footage um, epic where they pop in the tape and record themselves sleeping and weird things happen. But going back to the Val Luton style, you just barely see a shadow. You see a door open. You see a door close. You see the, the, uh, cur- the, the, the p- blanket, thank you, being pulled off the bed. Um, and with, uh, with this one, what's really notable about it is that when they started previewing the movie... Um, the audience started getting up and walking out of the screenings. And the producers were panicked, because that's usually a really terrible sign. And so they started going out into the lobby and saying, you guys okay? And the people are just like, I just had to leave. I I can't watch this anymore. I'm just too scared. And so the advertising campaign didn't show you clips from the movie. It showed you the audience watching the movie, which was a brilliant way to sell a movie. Uh, and so this one, while the movie is good, while it's scary, while it created a, uh, a little, you know, sequel genre of its own, um, it's really that advertising campaign that was, that was new and remarkable. 
So, those are all the photos I got. I'll be happy to talk about any other movie or take questions or uh, or do anything else. I don't dance very well. Yeah. Oh. Yes. I saw the television version of The Shining, and I don't know who produced it. It came out. Oh, the miniseries. Yes. Yeah, uh, it, 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 was, it, it was a remake. Yeah. Well, it was. It did adhere. It adhered more to the book, um, because. Not with Stephen King, because his books are so long and dense and have so many characters that they're very hard to film. They do, and you know I, there are some good ones, but by and large, the best Stephen King movies are his non-horror, Shawshank Redemption. The Green Mile, which has a, super, a little supernatural element to it, and Stand By Me, which might be the best movie made. But Shawshank and Stand By Me are made from his novellas, so they're short. Um, now, The Mist is very good. That's also made from a novella, but it's, it's a pretty good movie. Um, but Carrie is one of those films that I, I hated it when it first came out, and so I said, I'm going to watch it again and see if maybe I was wrong. I watched it again and hated it even more this time. Because it dates worse than the Golem. It really does. You're looking at these people that are supposed to be 70s high school kids going, what planet are we on? And uh, The Shining, as I say, not that good. But the miniseries of Salem's Lot, one of the most terrifying things that's ever been on television. Uh, The Stand, brilliant miniseries. The miniseries of The Shining was okay. Uh, It did adhere to the story more. And it was made primarily because King doesn't like the Stanley Kubrick film either. He's, he's reconciled himself to it, but he never really cared for it. Um, but what was the other one that they did? Oh, yeah, oh, It. Oh, my God. I just showed that to my son. Uh, yeah. And he's 20. But uh, I hadn't seen it for a long time, so I watched it with him again. And we were talking to a group of people the other day, and I just, because I have this dysfunction in my brain where I slip into other voices, you may have noticed. I can't help it. It just happens. Um, And so I'm talking to somebody, and I just went, beep, beep, Richie! And the person literally went pale. They went, don't do that. And so as soon as I found that out, of course... We all float down here, you know, and I just kept, you know. Tim, Tim Curry. Yeah, Tim Curry. But yeah, that is, it, the ending's a little weak, but it's terrifying. But they remade Salem's Lot on TV as a miniseries, and the remake is not good. You go to the original one. And, and the, uh, the uh, Cronenberg version of The Dead Zone is quite good. It's pretty good. Yeah, that one is pretty good. And, and it was remade as a, uh, as, as not a miniseries, but like a regular series. I think it was on FX. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, with Anthony Michael Hall. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and The Dead Zone is pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of Stephen King movies out there. Um, and uh, some of them, the, the new version of Carrie... Uh, they just tried to make it too much like the old version of Carrie, and it was very badly miscast. But well, I think they've revised it. When the musical version, a Broadway musical based on Carrie, I mean, why not do Triumph of the Will as a Broadway musical? Yeah. You know? But uh, um, it was one of the most legendary catastrophes in Broadway history when it first came out in, I think, '81. Early 80s. Um, it, it just was every now and then a Broadway show comes out that fills the house because word gets out that this is, 
you know, a total disaster. It ran five performances. Betty Buckley played Carrie's mother, and she played the coach in the movie, in the Brian De Palma movie, and she's a Broadway performer anyway. She got good reviews. The girl playing Carrie got good reviews. Everything else was... But uh, but they have they've had thirty years to work on it and so they've uh, the, uh, the reactions have been very positive towards the uh, stage production here yeah I've changed it quite a lot yeah but you know and how am I doing for time Vernon okay thanks just just you know throw something at me yes ma'am while we were doing standby it was such a horror in Eugene Oregon where it was being filmed that we weren't able to get any response from the Stephen King name, so we went for Rob Ryan. Bra, yeah. Kids what did you do on Stand By Me? Uh, I was what they called a lead man in those days, which was an assistant to the set decorator. Oh, okay. Yeah, they did. A lot of people didn't realize it was Stephen King because I, I think if, if they had really advertised it that way... Um, the horror movie people, or the horror people would have come out and been disappointed because it wasn't a horror movie, but the general audience may not have come out because they thought it was a horror movie. So I think that was a good, uh, a good decision. Blueberries are able to donate anything and have their kids even be extras. Really? Oh, no, Stephen King, uh-uh. Wow. Oh, and, and, wow. You hear about that in the South. I didn't realize Eugene, Oregon had that problem. It was based on a novella that Steve right. wrote called The, the Body. Body. Yeah. No, we, we had to go see that repeatedly because at the time that came out, my wife was licensing director for Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who wrote the song Stand By Me. And so they like paid for the office with that one film for that year. Ray Gideon with the writers who adapted it. Yeah, no, it's it is one of the best Stephen King films to date, and Misery is also very good. That's that's more of a thriller, horror movie. But again, that's one of his shorter novels. Uh, you know, you 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 couldn't make a feature film like a two-hour, even a three-hour feature film out of it. 1,100 pages, you couldn't do it. Um, or The Stand, even. There's just too much stuff going on. But when you can, when you can space it out and have all of the characters. The characters are really what populate Stephen King, like Dickens. You love the characters and the character sets. And you've got to have the time and the space to get all of those folks out. And then when they all come crashing together, um, you know, you've, you've got the, the, the meat of the movie. Um, right. And uh, Misery is the only King film so far to win an Academy Award for, for Kathy. For, for oh, that's right. Yes, there have been some nominations. Sissy Spacek was nominated for Carrie, and Piper Laurie was nominated for Carrie. Um, yeah, that's true. There, the horror movies don't get a lot of Academy Awards. Silence of the Lambs, I consider a horror movie. That's the only one I can think of that won Best Picture. I don't believe so. Jaws was nominated, but it got music score and film. Yeah, it didn't win Best Picture or anything, but yeah. Yeah. Movie called Matinee with John Goodman. Yeah. What was the movie producer that was about? William Castle. Castle. Yeah, he. John Goodman played. Right. Castle. Yeah, William Castle was a journeyman director in the. He started in the very late 30s and into the 40s, um, where you know he was doing things like Boston Blackie and The Crime Doctor and and these series films, and just knocking them out. He was just a studio contract director, and. Uh, I, I would love to know why. Maybe you know why. I, I never knew why he just 
seems to have kind of gotten up one morning and said, I'm going to start making these fun gimmicky horror movies. Um, you know, he's he was a showman. The title of his autobiography is, you know, I want to scare the pants off America. And so he just says this is what he wanted to do. But he made things like Macabre, which is one of the more conventional ones, um, House on Haunted Hill. Um, yeah, that's it's a fun film. It makes Mr. Sardonicus. Um, but what was 13 Ghosts? Yeah, there's another big gimmick one that I can't. Tingler. Tingler, the Tingler, of course. Uh, incidentally, this is totally esoteric and, and, you know, take it for what it's worth, but um, when you hear Vincent Price in film, and you hear that wonderful quasi-British voice, that's not the way Vinny sounded. I knew Vinny a little bit. He had his natural voice. He never lost his Missouri accent. And his natural voice was much deeper because he was such a terrible chain smoker. And so it sounded like he came from Missouri, which he always said he was just an old Missouri boy. If you watch The Tingler, you're getting the way Vinny really sounded. You're not getting this. And so it's fun just to watch the movie and wonder why he sounds like that, but that's really Vinny. That's really the way he talked. Um, but as I say, that's total digression. Um, but uh, yeah, Bill Castle did all these great gimmicky movies where he'd have skeletons flying out over the movie screen or he'd wire the seats. And the movies are so much fun. But House on Haunted Hill, I, I liken it to an Abbott and Costello comedy in that the only purpose of an Abbott and Costello comedy is to make you laugh. They don't care how. If they have to bring in a guy in a gorilla suit to do it, they do it. It just makes no sense. It doesn't matter as long as they get that laugh. House on Haunted Hill, they want to make you scream, and they don't care how. And when you realize, um, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Okay, it's a plot. It's, you know, the, the victim really isn't dead. It's It's all a murder plot. Once you accept that, you start thinking, Okay, how do you train a rope to to tie somebody up by itself if it's not supernatural? How do you hang somebody and fly them around outside if it's not supernatural? They don't care. They just want you to get creeped out and scream. And uh, Castle went on to do... A subject I didn't cover in the book because I was afraid if I did, I'd really get creamed. But there was a subgenre of the 60s called hag horror that was started with whatever, be, or, or, uh, um, whatever happened to Baby Jane. And when that was such a big hit, and then Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte came out, which was also a huge hit, everybody now started trying to find old actresses to become menaces in these horror movies. So you had Olivia de Havilland, Lady in a Cage. You had Tallulah Bankhead in Die, Die, My Darling. Shelley Winters did a couple of them. Um, and it was it was called Hag Horror. And <laughs> But it's, it's not the most delicate way to... Uh, to uh, to put this, but what, what 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 what's the matter with Helen? 
What's the matter with Helen? Was I believe that was Shelley Winters and Debbie Reynolds. Um, I don't know where I was going with Hag Horror. I did have a point to make, but I can't remember. Subgenre, yeah. Um, well, I guess just to say that's one that I didn't really cover, but it, it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. And, you know, God bless. Oh, I know where I was going. Castle did some of those. Straight Jacket with Joan Crawford. I saw what you did also with Joan Crawford. So he kind of got into the uh, Nightwalker with Barbara Stanwyck. He kind of got into the Hag Horror genre. Then he produced Rosemary's Baby, which was a total departure for him. And he wanted to direct it, but they wouldn't let him because they said, you know, they think you're going to be shooting babies out of cannons at the front of the theater or something. Um, And after that, he made a couple of kind of artistic films. And then, funnily enough, he just started showing up in acting roles. Uh, He's in Day of the Locust, playing a flamboyant director. And so uh, I think he... I think he kind of semi-retired a little bit, and then you know people who loved him put him in their movies. He popped up, uh, but kind of as a, a general summation, because I get asked if I'm doing radio things or anything like that. The question is always why? Why are horror films so big? You know, why are they so popular? Westerns come and go, mysteries come and go, spy movies come and go. Why horror films? They're they're just eternal. And I have a pet theory. Uh, like Baldrick and you know Blackadder, I have a cunning plan um, that they reflect whatever time they are created in, and they keep up with the changing times. Uh, at least in America, in the 1930s into the 40s, you had mad doctors everywhere. That's because an awful lot of these filmmakers. Uh, like Robert Siodmak and and Kurt Siodmak and a lot of these fellows escaped Germany where they were trying to make super people. And so that's reflected in some of the movies. And the good thing about a movie is you get to kill the bad guy. Uh, In the 40s and 50s, you had giant bugs Godzilla, the classic example. That's you know, a reaction to the atomic age, dealing with the fears of the atomic age. I mentioned in the 60s, Rosemary's Baby, the fear of secularism, and it carried on into the 70s. Today, we have zombie mania. I think that's because we've almost never lived in a more divided society. Maybe during the 1860s we did. Zombies are the ultimate metaphor for a a divided society because it's us versus them. And if we can just get rid of them, shoot them in the head to get rid of them, society will go back to being normal again. And so even the ghost thing, even paranormal activity and Blair Witch Project, I think is in response to terrorism. You can't see the enemy. They're there, but maybe they're not, but maybe they are. Even if you set up a camera, you can't see them. You can't screen them. And that's why I think the horror movie keeps going and going and going and going because we always find a way to reflect our real fears in metaphoric fears for a little bit of catharsis. And as I say, because you can kill the bad guy. There's, uh, there's another paranormal activity coming out mm-hmm. in a week or two, I think. Yeah. The, uh, the, the ghost dimension. Yeah. Ghosts are coming back. I think vampire, uh, well, uh, zombies are beginning to crest a little bit, but ghosts are, are coming back in. Yes, sir. Uh, two things. One, in support of your argument you just made is uh, the idea that what Wes Craven and Toby Hooper were up to with Last House on the Left and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there's a couple other films in that in that era that I can't remember right now. That a lot of what was going on there was a direct response to the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. We were engaging in 
the way that uh, the little girl running down the street with napalm on her body and the CBS News, that the horror films at that time were trying to force the American audience to deal with like the extremes of human experience and the way that the Vietnam War and what we were seeing from it did. It should be seen now because they yeah. Toby Hooper has said as much yeah. that it was it was in response to what he was watching on Walter Cronkite. There is another element, I think, because Last House was 71 and, and Chainsaw was 74. And in both of them, you have a family that kills people. Well, who's that a metaphor for? Charles Manson. And I think a lot of slasher movies are in response to this idea that there are people out there who for no reason whatsoever, or for such a demented reason you can't even bring it out in court, want to kill you in a horrible fashion. So, yeah. My second question was, I was wondering if you had any opinion on uh, the rise of television as a legitimate contributor to this history. Like, for instance, in the 1970s, the... Made-for-TV thing called Trilogy of Terror. Yes. Terror oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do have. And then, and then of course, you know, we have The Walking Dead now. Right. No, I, I absolutely, I, I agree. I have a section on television horror, and it, it can't be all-inclusive, obviously. Uh, but it really started off with things like Thriller. But that was really more a reflection of the era of the anthology show than it was an actual horror show because you had all of these anthology shows on the air. Somebody said, hey, why not do a horror show? Why not get Boris Karloff? He's hot again. Um, and so you had that. You know, Twilight Zone got a little creepy. Alfred Hitchcock got a little creepy. But still, they were mostly anthology shows. But yeah, the, the phenomenon of the movie of the week, which was a wonderful era where they were B-movies basically and they would frequently have major stars or formerly major stars um, in these little 73 minute epics because it was a 90 minute thing plus commercials an awful lot of them were horror films one called Crowhaven Farm is still one of the creepiest things it's a Salem witch thing with uh, I want to say Barbara Stanwyck but I don't know if that's right Um, and there was another one one of my favorites because it was so old-fashioned is called The Cat Creeps. It was written by Robert Block, the guy who wrote Psycho, directed by Curtis Harrington, who specialized in these weird movies. And it was about, um, it was a mummy movie, but the mummy was a female. And the mummy was played by Meredith Baxter, everybody's favorite girl next door, except she's a mummy and she kills people. And, uh, you know, you can't take it seriously, but it's just so much fun. And there was one called Dark Night of the Scarecrow that's just terrifying. But yes, the the movie of the week phenomenon definitely... Well, the Night Stalker, yeah, that was that was a movie of the week. That was the highest rated movie of the week ever. And the sequel, The Night Strangler, those directly led to TV series like Friday the 13th, the series, which wasn't Jason. It was more of an anthology. And Tales from the Crypt, which really pushed the TV envelope. Uh, they could on cable. And... Uh, a lot of supernatural horror movies, and yeah, we, now we have The Walking Dead. We have um, a lot of, you know, today Today, a lot of supernatural shows are teen, because that's, that's where we are at present, where vampires automatically equals teen sex, um, which is kind of a variation of the Halloween Friday the 13th theme, as if you're a teen uh, and you have sex, you die. Now, if you're a teen and you have sex, you die, but you come back. To have more sex with somebody else who might be a werewolf until a witch saves you. With, uh, with another zombie. 
or with another zombie. Yeah, that's you gotta be careful. Sex with a mm. the the yeah the the repercussions are real bad. Uh, yeah. I believe there's an actual Twilight Zone episode though that is a direct response to uh, something you were talking about earlier about the guy who the original version of the guy with the dummy. There is, yes. That is one of the most horrifying. That's still, and you know, June Foray is a good friend of mine. She did the voice of Talkie Tina. She's also Rocky the Flying Squirrel and Natasha and a lot of others. And uh, I was. I was uh, interviewing her one time, way, way, way back when. I've, I've known June. I'm one of her newer friends. I've only known her about 30 years. June just turned 97. And, uh, but, you know, as, in the course of the interview, she does all of her voices. She'll say, little into Natasha, and all this kind of thing. And she did, ta- I mentioned, Talkie Teen. I, th- I think it's one of the most brilliant voice performances anybody has ever done anywhere. Should have gotten an Emmy. Or even billing would have been nice. Uh, what she puts into that voice is is just astonishing. Um, but I mentioned how much I liked it, and she started doing Talkie Tina. And as I'm sitting there talking to this absolutely delightful, attractive, nice lady, I'm thinking, wow, she's really lost it. Because uh, the voice just doesn't sound the same. But, you know, you don't say that. Then I went home with my tape to transcribe it for the article. And when that moment came and... I'm talking Tina, and I hate you. The hair stood up on the back of my head, because there she was. And I realized it was the visual that was shorting out the audio. And June says that, too. She wants, you know, directors to look at the floor while she's working, because you just want to get the sound. But, But she just, you know, 30 years or so after the show, she just still nailed it. And, oh, man... <laughs> when back when I had hair, it stood up. Um, but yes, that uh, Twilight Zone actually did quite a few of the uh, Dead of Night episodes. They did the, the Room for One More. That was a segment of Dead of Night, where the person keeps having the dream of the mysterious person going room for one more, and then it turns out, you know, there's some vehicle that the crashes that they would have been on had they not been terrified and ran away. Um, I'm pretty sure they also have the haunted mirror in a Twilight Zone episode. But like I say, all of these Dead of Night stories, um, if you watch the movie today, you think, oh my God, how many t- I've seen this thing so many times. But this movie was made 70 years ago. They started it. And... Uh, um, a lot of well, certainly the ventriloquist has never been done quite as effectively as Dead of Night, as the Michael Redgrave performance. Though the Twilight Zone one, with there were they did two of them. I think Cliff Robertson is the good one, and then they did another one with Jackie Cooper that was just a virtual remake because I guess they were running out of ideas by that point, and it wasn't. Oh yes. Yes, magic. Yeah, yeah, and that again was based on a novel. Um, But yeah, that one was. He. It was kind of if Norman Bates had studied ventriloquism, you know, that's kind of what would have resulted. Which actually is an interesting idea. I wonder if anybody's done that. Norman doing open mic night somewhere. (laughs) You don't laugh, you're dead. One more, if you don't. Sure. Uh, I was wondering if you had any. experience with some of the more recent stuff where people are actually, rather than doing parodies or deconstructions of 
going back and trying to recreate uh, homages to some of the earlier eras, like this one, the one really successful one that I think of recently is this film that came out about a year ago called It Follows. I'm not familiar with that, but I know the concept. It's a really brilliant uh, example of making a movie on a shoestring budget uh -huh. where the, the reason it works is because there's no money to spend on it, and it's literally just about filming people talking, and then in, way in the distance is like somebody possibly walking towards the camera, and you never really know if that's the thing you're supposed to be afraid of. Uh. And it's all about this something or somebody is following everybody in the film. There was a, oh, there was another one that's it's probably about 10 years old now, maybe a little older, called The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera that was an homage to the 1950s. You know, not, not Ed Wood, maybe more of a Burt Gordon kind of thing. Almost, a, almost an old serial-style adventure where, you know, one-take wonders, where all the actors are clearly reading something off a screen because we only have enough film for one take. Cut! Thank you. Um, and, but they deliberately did it that way, and it came out pretty good. Um, actually, the, uh, the, the most recent remake of The Wolfman that Universal did was an attempt to go back, yeah, with Hopkins and with... Uh, with uh, um, Benicio, uh, Benicio del Toro, yeah, one of them damn del Toro people. Um, but it was uh, they wanted to go back to the old way, and you know the makeup was largely original again, Rick Baker without the hydraulics, even though the transformations were digital, and it was more shadowy and you know not so much knife in the eyeball kind of stuff. I know there is a movie coming out because it's my next book also called Krampus. Krampus is the anti-Santa Claus. He's the Christmas demon. And uh, they very deliberately tried to recreate the mid-80s Spielberg feel. Um, poltergeist, gremlins, goonies, you know, that the, the Spielberg factory that was quasi-family film but still scary, frequently set around Christmas or a holiday. And they deliberately sought to, to redo that feel. I don't know what the rating is, but they really wanted nothing more than a PG-13. Um, but I've seen clips from it. It really does look pretty scary, so I have my hopes. Billy uh, Friedkin really liked a little independent thing recently called the uh, Bob Babadook. Oh, I saw the, that. Uh, the Babadook, yeah, a number of people. Uh, Billy was very... There's, I, I think you're finding there's a kind of a retro thing and as you say it's not spoofy because spoofy if you're mel brooks you can do spoof um but if there's this unfortunate idea that if you're not good enough to do something seriously well we'll just wink at the camera and laugh that's not spoof that's that's sloth and uh but there is a, a real retro zeitgeist to coin a phrase in all areas where People are getting tired of digital. They want to see real people doing something. They're getting tired of, of you know, hydraulic special makeup. 
They want to see that there's a human being under this thing. And it's going story-wise as well. They want to go back to maybe an earlier time when you concentrated a little more on the story and the atmosphere and the mood instead of, hey, let's see how we can dismember the guy this time. So it's almost the anti... It's like we're bouncing back from torture porn where you have the real extreme effects of, of literally bodies being laid open. And you're going not quite to Val Luton. I don't think we could ever go all the way back. But just a little a little edgier, saving the, the real shock stuff for the moment. So it genuinely is a shock. Because when you see nine people decapitated by the 10th, you're going for popcorn. So Eli Roth's latest film, Green yeah. Inferno, tanked after a week. I mean, yeah. you couldn't even give away tickets for that. Well, he, he wouldn't write the foreword to my book, so that's fine with me. Yes. <laughs> I just happened to walk in accidentally. Oh. We're actually filming a horror film. Oh, my goodness. It's called Ouija. Okay. absolutely on point. It's about humans of, you know, so it's not just gaseous stuff. It's you actually see the person being a ghost. Cool. But anyway, I've got to get Oh, terrific. Okay. But, uh, I just happened to come up here. Oh, well, thank you for coming. Wow, this is very cool. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, hey, I work for scale. <laughs> yeah. Two movies come to mind, The Others yes. and then The Orphanage, and those are kind of like gothic movies. Yes, gothic is starting to come back. The Others, I think, is a terrific movie. Um, you know, some, some hardcore ghost people. Okay. I'll guess I'll have to be the last one because they want to go home. Uh, some hardcore ghost people say, "Oh, you can't!" You know, they broke their own mythology. But you know, it, I thought it was a good movie. I didn't see uh, Orphanage, yeah, it's very, it's very but there was one that I liked an awful lot. It was called The Woman in Black, and it was a modern Hammer film. The studio kind of reformed. It was based on a novel and then a play with Daniel Radcliffe that I thought was excellent because it was. They did have scares, they had shocks, but it was the kind of thing where you just barely see something and you think you saw it yeah that was that was a very good one so oh yeah the girl that no no i'm sorry we got to go but thank you all so much absolutely you've been listening to the skylight books author reading series Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.